The Napa Know How Motorsport Academy is back, bigger than ever, in 2022. Led by supercar star Bryce Forward as the driver mentor, the Academy offers tuition to all racers aged 13 and up, giving insights into the world of racecraft and analysis, plus information on health, sponsorship and media. On top of the information you'll receive, you can win regular prizes and best of all, it's free to join. Get involved at the new Napa Motorsport Asia Pacific Facebook and Instagram pages or visit the Napa Australia or New Zealand websites to sign up and be part of know-how that is synonymous with Napa. Start your engines. This is the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racer Podcast. And welcome to Episode 7 of the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racing Podcast. Catch up with everything at www.napaautoparts.com.au or NZ if you're uh, over the Tasman. A very, very big welcome to Episode 7. We've got a full episode lined up, ready to go for you. My co-host is a, a very pleasant gentleman. If you look really closely next time you're at Mount Panorama, you'll notice that the famous Mount Panorama sign actually says Gary's Mount Panorama. Welcome, Gaz. <laughs> Thanks, Taz. Great to be back again. Seven episodes. Wow, we're kicking through, aren't we? We're like a couple of kids just thinking we're lucky getting our, our new bike for Christmas each time, aren't we? Yeah, and we get some great good guests as well, and we've got a good one tonight. But I think we better kick off with uh, the demise of Wakefield Park, I guess. Last weekend was the last race meeting for the foreseeable future, and there was uh, well over 200 cars entered. A couple of them doubled, doubled up, of course, but... And a good crowd turned up as well, even though it was free to enter anyway. But there was a drive to Wakefield that the um, top part of the track from turns nine down to 10, it was literally packed. In the yeah, afternoon. so I guess let's hope it's not a send off. Um, let's hope it's a, a pause to gain some reality or gain some com- composure over it but there's certainly a lot of legalities have to change before we're going to go racing there on a on a full-time basis as a full-time entity so i guess the vanilla auto club need it to be a a seven day a week venue to make it viable well of course there's you know you don't go into these things as an investment even unless you can make a profit out of it there's no way they can make a profit out of four race days a month uh so therefore the They've had to basically just uh, close the gates and put the padlocks on for the time being. And hopefully uh, it'll get to government level where they can change the law and we can again go racing uh, just outside of Goulburn. You'd have to think, Gaz, you know, we, we all know what it's like to owe some money on a piece of property and you, you've got to keep working away and chipping away at it, don't you? So they need to keep the gates open. Let's hope that calm and sensible lines prevail and uh, we can see the Benalla Auto Club back in business at uh, at Wakefield Park because essentially it leaves the biggest state, the most populous state of Australia with only one full-time racetrack. Indeed. And it's pretty well booked out all year round these days. So where you got to race here, they're already looking at state championship meetings for next year and perhaps going interstate like Winton's the obvious choice because it's the closest one to New South Wales. But um to the mainstream anyway, and perhaps uh, QR and Morgan Park might be too far off the agenda either. 
Well, let's get a bit of spring in our step because uh, that's not great news for our sport, particularly for for New South Wales, because uh, we love to see Morgan Park back up on there and every track has an absolute place in our in our landscape. And we don't want to lose another one like well, New South Wales have, have seen the demise of Oran Park and uh, Amaru Park over the uh, recent past as well. So let's get a bit of a spring in our step. There was the Queensland State round on at Morgan Park where National Formula Ford uh, held their latest round in qualifying James Pizik, uh, pipped out. Valentino Studi, Zach Laboco, and uh, our friend Paul Zitti. Uh, he qualified 18th, and an old mate of mine from many years ago, Mark Zellner, qualified 21st in the car that uh, Mark Winterbottom won the, the championship with up there. And the races in Formula Ford were run by uh, Cameron McLeod, Ryder Quinn, Valentino Studi. Three second generation races, or third generations in the in the uh, in the Studi camp there. Second one, Cameron over Ryder, and then uh, Wynn Smith got uh, third. Ryder Quinn came home in the final with a win over Cam McLeod and James Pizik. So, uh, yeah, so a big event. Yeah, McLeod actually won overall. And when you say they are all third-generation uh, steerers because you've got Peter McLeod, Ryan McLeod, and now Cameron, that's, yeah. that's one family. And then you've got the, uh, the, the Quinns, obviously, with uh, Tony Kent, and now with Ryder. So there's two third-generation races. It's good that they all want to continue down that path as well. And I guess the uh, Studi family, you don't get a seat at the table unless you've done some laps of a racetrack and been <laughs> successful in, in that family too. Oh, that's a so, bit hard call, isn't it? Yeah, well, that is. That. They're all they're all winners. They're all open-wheel <laughs> races too. So uh, they, all, they, they all know what it's about. A great part of the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racing Podcast is... We're very closely associated with the Napa Know How Academy. It's a free service to help you improve your grassroots racing, fitness, diet, mental well-being, press and media, social media strategies, and much, much more. Talking about media strategies and catching up with the uh, Napa Know How Motorsport Academy member, it's over to Grant Rowley. So I've got Lachlan Cornt with me. He is uh, part of the Napa Motorsport Academy and he uh, races uh, sprint cars. So Lachlan, uh, tell us about how you found out about the Napa Motorsport Academy because uh, just talking to you off air, it was a cool little story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know Pete and the guys down at Napa Wollongong and um, you know, I've always got my stuff from there and they uh, had this opportunity arise to, to join the academy and the, I jumped straight on it. So it's a cool little opportunity and um, yeah, it's an awesome, awesome thing they're doing. Awesome, mate. So tell us about your racing. Uh, you race uh, sprint cars. We're in a little bit of the uh, off season at the moment, but it's all going to rev up soon. But just firstly, tell us uh, what you race and uh, what classes are you competing? Yeah, so we run um, 410 sprint cars, V8 sprint cars, uh, run on methanol. And uh, this season, probably just going to be running mainly at uh, the new Eastern Creek Speedway at the Sydney Motorsport Park. Um, starts November 24 and it'll go through till about May next year. So it should be a cool season. And then uh, we also got some racing in Perth, um, maybe some stuff in Victoria, Queensland. Uh, there's racing going on everywhere. So we'll try to do as much as that as we can for sure. Yeah, very cool. Uh, tell us about that new uh, Sydney racetrack that they have based out there at uh, at Eastern Creek. It's um, it's firstly it's cool because um, circuit racing, drag racing, karting, speedway, it's all in this great one hub now. But um, more specifically about 
the the Sydney Speedway. What's your thoughts on that new venue? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great uh, initiative by the government to to do that. They promised the world and we didn't really know if it was going to happen. And then we got that and it's just phenomenal um, world-class facility. Definitely one of the best in the country for sure. So super grateful to, to be able to have that just an hour away from our house and we'll be taking full advantage of it for sure. Cool. Now you said you'll head over to different states and different locations throughout the Speedway season. Uh, you said you'll come over to Perth. Are you going to do the Australian titles? Is that uh, part of the... Uh, yes, uh... sir. Yeah, we, um, we're going to head west and there's actually a few big races around that. So we're going to try and link it together and we'll probably spend about a month in WA. I think they got the Cricky Boys and the Australian title. Um, there's also a micro sprint formula 500 Australian title over there, um, which is like a smaller sprint car division that I also compete in regularly. So we'll try and hit that while we're over there as well. And yeah, it'll be a good little road trip. Awesome. Uh, no World Series sprint cars this year, but uh, what what are you trying to get out of of this year's sprint car season? Is it uh, you know a, a wins the the aim, or uh, or do you have uh, what, what's the realistic goals? Yeah, I mean, there's you know 50 good cars that show up to any race, so it's it's pretty tricky to to aim for a win. But you know, you, we're not showing up unless we we think we can win. Um, last season we finished with a second place at Sydney, uh, which was which is my career best so far. So uh, you know, I expect to be able to hopefully one better that this season. And um, but more realistically, you know, a top ten making feature races every week would be what we really expect. And then if we can do that, you know. The results should come. Awesome. Uh, of course, uh, we, we all can't wait for the sprint car season to start. Uh, there is a uh, the, the, obviously the biggest sprint car championship anywhere in the world is the World of Outlaws over in America. And given that you're talking on the Napa podcast here, you are going to say that Brad Sweet is your favourite driver. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the big cat is... Um... He's hard not to like the guys. He's so consistent, and and that Napa blue car does look pretty cool. So I don't know. Maybe we can um, t- talk to someone over in Napa, and maybe we can get something happening on my car too. <laughs> cool, mate. Thanks for your time. Cool. Thank you. Thanks, Brent. Fantastic to hear from our loyal academy members, and great to know that they're listening to the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racing podcast as well. Gaz, we've got a a ripping guest tonight. Gaz, our guest this time around is a multiple Australian champion. He may have been born on April 1, but he's no fool when it comes to talent behind the wheel. He'd started in karts, raced Formula Ford, sent supercars. From there, he took on sports sedans and won two titles, finished second twice, third four times, and had a great rivalry that really sparked the category to new levels of interest. Whilst all this was going on in the late noughties, he and early into the next decade, he took on the tilt at the Australian Superguard Championship. He won it twice, finished second on two occasions in the six seasons he competed. These days he mentors, tinkers around with all sorts of different things and uh, most recently raced a Master RX2 in historic touring cars. Let's say good day too and have a chat with Darren Hossack. Awesome to have you, Daz. Uh, I'm not sure whether you all heard uh, Gary's famous intro to our legends of guests that we have on the uh, <laughs> Napa Auto Path Grassroots Racing Podcast, but I had a little tear on my cheek as he read through uh, 
your accolades and there's more. He didn't even dig back into your karting career where you won two national championships in that as well. Yeah, it was a long time ago now, but um, started racing karts in 1988 when I was uh, well, basically old enough to buy a cart and transport it around myself. And um, I guess it all sort of started from there. The um, the early days of uh, karting, was it your ambition then to go on to like tin tops, I guess, is lack of a better way of putting it? Was it karts is obviously the progression there is straight to Formula Ford, but uh, was it in your mind that where you wanted to go with your career? No, there was never ever sort of a career even planned. I'd always wanted to race carts and I guess not coming from a family of um, excessive wealth or anything. And my dad always sort of taught me that if you were going to do something, you sort of had to go and do it yourself. So when I was old enough, as I said, to sort of have a car and, and be able to get to the circuits, I sold pretty much everything I owned to buy my first cart. And I just loved cart racing. There was never, even though my dad had raced cars plenty in the 60s and 70s, I'd, I'd never really had a desire to race carts, but uh, cars, pardon me. But, um, you know, things change. I, I was fortunate enough um, to get a, a job at, at Drew Price Engineering, who was the manufacturer of Arrow and Demon carts at the time. And um, there was a bloke working there by the name of Michael Borland, who was running Drew's Formula Holden for him. And Drew pretty much sort of gave him a job as a welder um, because the Spectrum um, Formula Ford um, program at the time was effectively a one-car operation. And um, Michael said to me one day, do you want to drive the Formula Ford? Which um, I gave about 30 seconds thought and um, said, yep, that'd be good. And so we embarked on the 1992 Victorian Championship, which we were fortunate enough to win. 1992, the Victorian Formula Ford Championship. Over, do you remember, Darren, how many rounds that was over and who were you, your main competitors? Because that era was chock-a-block full of big names of races, the likes of Richards and Lowndes, and those guys were racing in, in the Victorian and the National Formula Ford Championship. Who were you up against in that, that frame of the time? Um, it was a little bit confusing back then in terms of um, the rounds because whilst we did the state championship, the uh, which Darren, I'm sure you'd remember fondly, the champion of Winton um, series was also um, quite big. So you seem to be racing at Winton all the time. So I can't remember how many rounds were actually the Victorian championship, but ironically, the guy that I'd raced for the, um, I guess, was competing against in the end for the Victorian championship was a bloke by the name of Cameron Prince, who ironically now I help his daughter Courtney Prince out with the Aussie cars. So um, it came down to him and I. And look, I've got to say that, and I've said this to Cameron, he he probably deserved to win. But back then, you, as being in an older car, as I was in the Spectrum 04, you actually got more points than what people in the newer cars did. So I guess I won um, basically because every time I got a position, I was probably awarded more points. But that's just how it was back then. Cameron actually ended up with um, Cameron McConville's uh, championship winning car for the um, for the remainder of the rounds. Um, so that was, he was certainly top opposition. You touched just briefly on Mike Borland and uh, Borland Racing Developments, the Spectrum and Sabre, the Spectrum Formula Fords and the Sabre Formula Vs, obviously right back in the very beginning when, when Mike still had to have a job, um, at Drew Price, we we now know that uh, the Ball and Racing Development selling 
and running cars on an international scale in the US, in, in Europe and all of those sort of things. What was the the very first or those those very early years of joining Mike with those spectrums like? Um, well, it was a one-car operation then. He he um, had the Spectrum 04, which Stephen Richards had driven the year before me. Um, and the 05 was uh, in construction. Um, so I never got to drive the 05, unfortunately, but it was a one-car operation. Look, it certainly, it, it cost me money, but it didn't cost me a lot of money. Mike put a lot of his own um, money into it. And, you know, the car was probably um, not through design um, or not through, I guess, lack of design. It was probably a little bit behind its times in terms of Formula Fords were developing at a great rate back then. You know, Van Diemen introduced a new car every year, Swift likewise. And the 04 was a... A bit of an older car um but i was lucky i had the bloke that built it in my corner so you know that was um you know mike taught me a lot along with um with drew price in terms of um a lot about motorsport and how to go racing you know so i guess between the two of them in the early days i was in pretty good hands and um i, I learned a lot of what i know today from from those two people before we we move on from you know the drew price and the karting side of things with arrow and demon that you've touched on where the napa auto park grassroots racing podcast is grassroots racing can you just take us back and, and give us a, a run through your your karting career because you're a couple of times australian champion there and that doesn't just happen by accident what what was the what was the grounding there with drew and, and running with that team like um, well, through Peter Macro used to build my engines and, and Drew sponsored Adam. And I guess through that relationship, I'd actually finished my toolmaking apprenticeship and um, uh, through, I don't know if I decided it wasn't for me or whatever, but um, there was a job opening for two weeks at, at DPE, effectively putting orders in, in boxes and everything. So I thought, oh, that'll be a good in into the... Um, you know, into karting, I was, I was racing at the time, but I was a hundred percent, you know, privateer rather than Peter helping me out with the engines. And I think two weeks ended up being six years that I, I worked for Drew for initially, and then went back uh, later on. Um, but, you know, Drew was, Drew was very good at, I guess, working out um, who he had working for him and what they could do. And he obviously felt that um, my driving could help him out a little bit in terms of development. So chassis development was a, was a big part. And the, uh, the first national championship we won was in the Reed light category in 1994 at Bolivar. So um, I still remember the night before I was starting on pole position the next day. And I thought, wow, I could be an Australian champion tomorrow. And once again, that was never the, the, the desire when I started karting, I just love racing carts, but you know, things happen and um, you find yourself in weird places. Aaron, were you doing formula forwards and karting at the same time? Yeah, I was. And um, to be fair, I probably enjoyed the carts more. And at the end of um, 1992, I said to Michael that um, through not really having funds to, you know, I was spending every cent I had to, to help pay for racing the car I said to Michael that I'd probably rather focus on the, the karting and um, which looking back now may not have been the smartest move, but back then, you know, guys getting out of Formula Ford and, and going on in further in motorsport 
wasn't really the norm. Craig Lowndes, Steve White, Steve Richards, they'd all moved up. But typically, Formula Ford, whilst it was a stepping stone, there was no guarantee it was going to take you anywhere. So Mike said to me, who do you think I should put in the car? And I said, well, Jason Bright's a, a pretty good steerer. I reckon I'd get in touch with him. And um, not claiming <laughs> that I started Brighty's career at all, but... Um, Friday drove the car the next year and, um, you know, he went on to do great things with Mike. Well, you handed him the 1992 Victorian Championship winning car, didn't you? So, of course, he went on all right after that. Well, he actually, the car got sold um, to Paul Stevenson from memory after uh, we'd finished with it. And um, Jason actually started in the 05. So, I, I, I stand corrected, but, you know, I don't believe he ever drove the car that I raced. So we can, next time we're speaking to Steve-O, we can say, hey, Hosk gave you a, a, a lift up when you got that car off you. Well, he might disagree. He might say that, <laughs> that I sold him a lemon. <laughs> well, he's still working on Formula Fords, isn't he? Every time I see him at the track, he's working for Sonic. Yeah, he is. So moving on from the, the karting, it, it was a pretty quick jump to get into touring cars. How did all that come about? Um, well, I'd sort of raced a bit of Speedway in there and I was still racing carts and I, I bought a Gemini sports sedan um, in, I think that was 1995, which look, looking back, I couldn't afford to race it. But I'd sort of seen, you know, guys that I'd raced carts against, you know, getting into supercars and things. And I was, I was sort of tied up in Speedway and I, as much as I love Speedway, I felt that probably... Um, my talent that I, if I had any, was was more on the blacktop. Um, so I raced a Gemini for a while and um, sort of through um, my, my, I guess, contacts through uh, working at DPE, I met, um, well, now the late Gary Dumbrell. And, and he, I was Australian champion at the time, and he wanted me to help his son, Paul. So I said, initially I said, look, just sponsor me in the race car and I'll, uh, I'll help Paul out. And he said, no, I'd rather just pay you for each day that you work, which I can't remember the figure, but it was probably as much as what I was making every week at DPE. And um, I was actually friends with Brad and Kim Jones and Brad had offered me, I and Kim had offered me a drive in the um, uh, Audi two litre touring car, just a, just a test, which I didn't know what it was. Um, but it was basically come and have a steer. And there was um, Cam McConville, Darren Pate, and also Christian Jones. And Gary said to me, you're going to need some money. And I said, no, I'm pretty sure I don't. Brad never mentioned taking money. He said, no, no, you'll, you'll need money. Trust me. And he, he offered me a fairly large sum of money. And I remember going out there saying to Brad, look, mate, I don't know what this means, but I think it was a hundred grand or something at the time. And um, I said, look, I've got some money. I don't know what it means, but I've got some money. And um <laughs> I think that it was a bit of a PR thing, which actually aired on TV and um, Cam McConville had already been promised to drive. So after that, I said to Gary, well, why don't we get our own car? So we looked at the Nissan that um, Steve Richards had been racing that was for sale. And it was a lot of dealing with overseas. And I could sort of see that was going to be a, a little bit problematic. And I was really good friends with John Faulkner at the time, who actually was um, had le was leasing the factory um, off through price. So I knew John quite well. And um, it turned out that the V8 supercar that Steve had been racing, which was an ex um, Gibson motorsport car, that was also for sale. So we sort of looked at, at doing that and, and getting John to run it. And ultimately, um, 
that's what we did. The start of the 97 championship, we, um, we headed out to Calder for that night meeting for my first supercar race. Darren, can I just, again, I just like to just touch back on the, uh, the Gemini because amongst the sports sedan fraternity, especially uh, down South here in Victoria, it's quite a, a coveted prize that car. It's had more, um, more owners than it's had race uh, wins, but um that car was originally built by John Brookfield for Brocky and it'd been through the hands of like Rowan Harmon and um, Eric Jones. They finished it off and Wayne Mankin, even, even when it was a six cylinder turbo provided bits and pieces for that particular car. And that Gemini, when you raced it was a rotary. Yeah, that's right. It had a 13 B peripheral port in, which I knew nothing about rotaries. And to be honest, I know very little more today. Um, <laughs> But it was a good car, and it was it was probably at the right price. I guess bang for buck, it was it was if I could afford anything, it was what I could afford. And I guess ultimately, it maybe at that point I was trying to do a little bit more in in circuit racing, and I felt that I could drive that car, and it was sort of. Um, you could see that it wasn't a big V8, you know, like the Bob Jolly cars and the Mike Emery Saab and everything like that. So if I could just impress a few people, particularly Brad Jones, um, you know, maybe I might go a little bit further with it. And I'd say, you know, it, it sort of, maybe it didn't do that, but it, it taught me a lot about running a race car myself. I didn't have Mike Ballin to you know, to fall back on. I had to, you know, I remember cutting the car up constantly and changing suspension and, and, you know, I probably made it a worse car, truth be told, but it taught me a lot about fabrication and how suspension worked and, and things like that, which, you know, certainly later on in life is, is um, proven to be quite valuable. The other thing you, you mentioned as well, Darren, was your, your time in, um, in dirt track racing in super sedans and, and such forth. What, what, was your introduction to get into to, into Speedway? Because I find with Speedway, it's normally some friend or friend of the family goes, come along and have a look at this and you fall in love with it. Yeah, my first introduction to Speedway was my dad actually rebuilt a, a Grand Prix midget for a guy um, back in the early 80s, I think 1980. And um, I didn't know what Speedway really was prior to that. And I don't know why I sort of had an interest in Speedway because certainly... Um, our family was not a speedway, you know, background family or anything, but, um, you know, I used to go to the speed bowl a little bit. And um, there was a class that, that still runs today called mini sprints. And effectively they were a, a, a small sprint car, if you like, with a, a Datsun or a Corolla engine. And um, they were, once again, they were, you know, something that I could afford to do. So I, I bought one of those and um, just started, racing that really and I guess that was in terms of you know learning how to weld things together and stuff like that that was you know the first car I really le learned with Drew Price was very good at letting us um, use the factory you know I had keys to the factory and I remember going in there one weekend and spending 48 hours cutting this thing up and welding it back together and all so um, that was good and I did that probably up to the point where I think I bought the Gemini and decided that as much as I love Speedway, um, circuit racing was the go. But since that, I've raced midgets, um, modified production, Amcar, um, very unsuccessfully wingless sprint cars, did a bit of damage to myself in the wingless sprint car. 
Um, but I've been very fortunate over the years, particularly with the midgets. I, I raced for Rob Southhouse and, um, and also Barry Power gave me a great opportunity to run one of his cars for a few years. So, um, yeah, love, love my speedway racing. Wouldn't say I'm particularly good at it. Had a few wins along the way. Certainly had a lot of crashes, probably more crashes than wins. But, um, yeah, still love it today. Just don't get out there as often as I'd like to. Would you, would you say that um, speedway experience is good for blacktop? We've, we've seen a few guys come on in more recent times that have come from speedway and they've been very, very good. Even running on older rubber, they seem to be able to cope better with, than some of the guys have never done it. I think, look, obviously from a car control point of view, it's good. And any, I think anytime you're, you're driving anything, it's, it's beneficial to, to what, you're, what you're trying to achieve. Um, I think Speedway teaches you a lot more things that maybe circuit racing doesn't, you know, particularly reading the track and, um, you know, just, just looking for where you can position the car. And, and, you know, there's a lot of things that Speedway brings, I think from a knowledge point of view that, I won't say you don't get from circuit racing, but maybe it takes a lot longer to get. Um, you know, if you look at Cam Waters, for example, you know, he was racing a sprint car. Um, you know, well, he's done a lot of sprint car racing um, of late. And, you know, he obviously feels that, you know, it helps him. And if you look at probably since he started racing the sprint car, I'd say he's been a little bit more competitive in the supercar championship. Yeah, I have to agree. I, I, you can see that's made Nathan Hearn was the one that stuck in my mind too in uh, Trans Am. He came from a speedway background and has proven to be pretty quick in those Trans Am cars. Yeah, I think look, anytime you can you can um, drive anything. Uh, there's there's so many facets to motorsport which I guess have all got to come together to provide a, a successful weekend. And speedway teaches you a lot of things, maybe not on track, but off track, you know, you don't, you've got a very short turnaround time in speedway. So when you have a crash or something happens, you'll be very organized to get the car ready again. So when it comes to circuit racing, it probably teaches you how to go about your racing in a more organized fashion. So you've, you know, you've got a, um, your correct list of spares and, you know, all the stuff that, that you need to, to get the car turned around quickly. Um, I guess over the years, you know, you know, doing it, you don't really notice. But when you look back at where you got a lot of your experience from, quite often it was not from the, you know, the form of motorsport you thought it was. Darren, it sounds like it's a, a program of events or a, a learning on the run and remembering everything you've done along the way. So you you either do it again if it was successful and avoid doing it again if it wasn't successful. Um while we're on the carts, I'd like to, which will jump some years beyond your time in, in the supercars, but we'll come back to that. Um, you raced in supercarts and you were very successful. Um, the likes of Sam Zavalia and Gary Pegararo and, and some of the really big names in supercarts. You, you know, you went toe to toe with the whole experience of driving a supercar, which is a little car without suspension on a big track. How, how does that, you know, what, what's the difference in the genre there? Yeah, well, the supercar was, um, you know, obviously a lot different to, to drive than a car. Um, speeds are quite high. Aero, even compared to a sports sedan, the Aero on a 250 International car, particularly at Phillip Island, is 
was was quite high. You know, I hear the Formula One drivers talking about the wind affecting them and, you know, um, you know, getting aero wash and things like that. That's all stuff you get in, in supercarts. Um, so, yeah, look, I don't, I don't know. I'd say, look, at that period, I was driving a lot of things and I didn't really think about the differences of driving a supercar. I just sort of jumped in and did it. But once again, if you've got any sort of, um, if you've had any success in motorsport, typically you've had good people around you. And I was fortunate enough to work with a guy by the name of Scott Ellis, who was racing supercarts and decided that he'd go ahead and build his own engine. And when he built this engine, he asked me to drive the cart. So um, I think we might have raced for five years and, and really looking back, had some quite successful results considering we had an engine that a bloke had, you know, literally built by himself. So, you know, once again, right place, right time. And um, yeah, just tried to make the most of it. Yeah, so, I mean, you actually won the championship in supercarts and in sports sedans in the same year, only the third Australian driver to do it. Uh, that must have been a what's the, the the jump from one car to another, like from a sports sedan? I think there was even a couple of meetings where you're doing both at the same meeting. Yeah, unfortunately, most most <laughs> meetings were um were both, and the biggest dilemma you have there is you've got to wear leathers in the supercar, and obviously your fireproof suit and everything in the sports sedan. And sometimes we were one race after another. Um, so that presented a few challenges. Um, but yeah, look, obviously, you know, fitness level had to be high. And I guess it, you know, look, I always said to Scott that because I was racing the sports sedan prior that that would be my, my focus, but I would give everything that I had to, um, to the supercar. Um, and it was difficult jumping at from one out, you know, from one to the other. But by the same token, there was plenty of times where it helped. I remember a wet race at Sydney Motorsport Park and I just jumped out of the sports sedan and I knew exactly where the track was wet and when it mm. was where it was dry. And on the opening lap, I looked around behind me and I actually thought they'd red flag the race. I was that far in front. I couldn't see anyone. And it was simply just that. I knew where to, you know, where I could drive. So there was plenty of times where um, running the two helped. I'm going to say that nine times out of 10, it was not a hindrance, probably not a help, but there was certainly times I remember missing a supercar race. I think at Phillip Island it was because um, I'd had to jump out of one into the other and, and they already sent the, sent the supercarts out on track and um, I wasn't ready. So we had to start out of pit lane and fight it from the back. Darren, we might take a quick break before we, uh, I guess, launch into what was your time in the supercars paddock. We'll be back with more with Darren Hossack after this break. Race Fuels is Australia's leading supplier of racing fuel to national and state-level motorsport. And its range of racing fuels includes the BP Supercars E85, which is available to grassroots races. For power and protection over pump fuel, Race Fuels imports the Elf Race 102, as used by Porsche Carrera Cup and the Touring Car Masters. More info on Race Fuels E85 and Elf Race 102 is available at racefuels.com.au. Welcome back to the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racing Podcast with Gaz and Daz. And of course, we've got uh, our famous guest with us today, Darren Hossack. We've been uh, having a great chat 
about career in karting and, and sports sedans. And certainly the, I guess, the higher profile aspect of Darren's career has been in, in supercars. Yeah, we're going to touch on that right about now and then probably talk about sports sedans after that. But uh, from a point of view of the supercars, you had uh, a couple of seasons there where you were running as a, as a full-time competitor and then probably more successfully as a co-driver in the Enduros. Yeah, I did um, did the Enduros, I think probably three rounds of Enduros, which was, looking back now, probably not as many as I would have liked. Um, but, you know, by the same token, I never, I never pursued it or anything like that. You know, I never went out chasing money so as I could do Enduros or anything like that. It was always through, um, you know, people ringing me, really, which I guess unless you, you know, keep chasing the drive, it's um they're gonna they're gonna stop ringing eventually but um yeah look we had some some mild success i think my highest finish at bathurst was probably sixth um but once again it was it was in a bit of a different time too where you know you could have a few things happen and and still um sort of run up the front you know the cars were probably not as well not probably though definitely not as reliable as what they are today so, you know, finishing sixth back then didn't necessarily mean you were the sixth fastest car or anything. It sort of meant you stayed out of trouble and you ended up there. But um, no, look, that was, it was a frustrating, yet it was a good time of my life. Um, you know, once again, I'm, you know, forever grateful the opportunities that were given to me to be able to run supercars, you know, for people like Fred Gibson, who you, you grow up sort of, you know, looking up to, I guess, and, you know, the late Peter Brock, um, you know, I had a little bit to do with Peter when he was racing. He sort of went out of his way to sort of find me and and give me a few tips and things like that, which was, you know, you look back now and you think, wow, that was really cool. Um, so it was a, you know, it was a good time, but it was a, a time that, you know, probably with the tyres and everything not being a controlled tyre, it was, it was also a difficult time too, you know. I felt that I was forever probably talking about the reasons why things didn't go as well as, I would have liked and maybe that was a bit of a reason why I sort of never really pursued supercars too much further. Darren, coming into Gibson Motorsport, you know, they were on the top of a wave at the, you know, at the end of that GTR, you know, Nissan phase of the of, of Gibson Motorsport. Must have been a pretty high pressure environment to arrive in with a team that were, you know, dominating um, you know, only a, a couple of seasons prior. Yeah, it was a little bit. Um, it was a little bit surreal at the time. I remember, you know, Mark Scaife going to Holden Racing Racing Team and and Gary Dumbrell saying that you know we're gonna um, pick up our operation and, and get Fred to run it. Which, um, look, I guess um, it was it had its fours and against. You know, I was really good friends with John Faulkner, and on a personal level, he was very good to me in, in giving me advice and things like that. Probably when we went to Gibson Motorsport, it was more accepted that you just knew what you were doing and you didn't need coaching. And I look back now at even what I know now compared to what I know then, and I certainly needed coaching. You know, there was no question from a driving point of view, from all facets of motorsport, I needed probably more coaching than what we got down there. Um, but at the same time, it was a really good opportunity to see how a professional motorsport team runs. You know, Fred led the way back in those years in, in terms of presentation. You know, I remember he was 
the only guy that sort of sent someone out to sand down the week before the 500 to paint the floor and things like that. So I picked up a lot of, um, a lot of things um, driving down there and then also working down there that, you know, I think have probably helped me in pretty good stead today. We'd say he'd be a fairly big influence on where you went to after that. Um, I wouldn't sort of, I wouldn't say that too much. I mean, ultimately, um, Gary Dumbrell was was paying for my motorsport and Fred was running the, the team. So um, Fred and Ellen Heafy, obviously. So we were, I guess, a customer of theirs. I, I wouldn't say that Fred sort of took me under his wing and, and sort of guided me through. He was running a business and he wanted his cars to win, which at the time they weren't. Um, which ultimately was, you know, sort of the, the demise of my full-time drive. Um, still get along with Fred well and everything. There's no, you know, no hard feelings or anything mm. like that. I look back at my knowledge back then and how, how young I was, and I was probably too focused on driving and not focused enough on the, um, the background politics that went on in motorsport to, to make sure you had a seat every year. The, um, the, the the decision then to um, move over to sports sedans, was was that something that just, again, right place, right time? Yeah, absolutely. There was no decision. John Goulet rang me up and said, um, would you like to drive my Saab sports sedan? And uh, <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, there was absolutely no question that I wanted to do that. I'd looked at that car from afar when I was running the, um, the Gemini, so much so that when I rebuilt the Gemini, I painted the the chassis grey like John had painted the Saab chassis grey and I painted the Gemini black um, because I just idolised that car. So when he rang me up and asked me if I'd like to drive it, um, it was, you know, it was the start of a, you know, really long relationship that, um, you know, I think we ended up together for, for driving together for 16 years. Um, and it also, I guess, got my dad a bit involved in sports sedans because he built the chassis um, and a lot of the other components on the Audi and um, has also done a lot of stuff for, for Tomasi's and also Dean Randall's uh, latest sports sedan. So, um, yeah, it's been good. Yeah, well, certainly we... Simon Fitzner also came along for the ride there, which was a, an old Gibson motorsport connection as well, wasn't it? Yeah, well, Simon, um, because I had a toolmaking background when I was at Gibson's, I, I worked there for quite some time Um you know, doing fabrication and, and machining. So Simon and I worked, I guess, shoulder to shoulder for, for a long time. And Simon had a, a history through his dad in sports at Anne's. And um, Simon might tell me my memory's going, but from memory, I was sort of, I guess, you know, my connection with John Goulet was sort of got what got Simon um, reintroduced, if you like, into, into sports at Anne's. Of course, uh, we were remiss if we didn't mention the rivalry that you ended up having with Tony Riccadello, and you both won titles in that period of time as well. So that made it more interesting. Yeah, look, I think there was probably more made of the rivalry thing with Tony than, than what there really was. I, I wouldn't say that in that period of time we were best mates. I don't think if you're sort of, you know, constantly rubbing mirrors with, someone that, that you're ever going to be best mates but you know there was certainly a lot of respect and you know I, I never had any ill feeling towards Tony and in fact when I um, banged my legs up a few years later um, in a speedway crash Tony was one of the first ones to give me a call and see how I was going and 
sitting down chatting to him on the phone, it was, you know, quite ironic that we had a lot of the same interests and probably had we not have been racing against each other and maybe not lived on opposite sides of the country, we probably would have been pretty good mates, to be honest. Yeah, I must admit that we did play it up quite a bit. We were probably guilty of that, yeah, both of us. <laughs> no, look, it, well, was, it was good. Look, to be honest with you, it was good for both of us because I think one without the other, you know, it certainly helped. Um, I don't like throwing the word career around, but I, I guess um, notoriety, if that's if that's a word you want to use, it certainly put us. Um, gave us both a bit of a bit of coverage, I guess. Whereas if one had been there and not the other and one had been miles out in front, then, you know, maybe sports sedans and and that wouldn't have probably got the um, you know, the the sort of recognition that it got. But it was a really good it was a really good time and and, you know, very rarely, even though our cars were quite different in their in their layout, it was very, very rare that we weren't racing each other you know, really, really hard, even though we went to a lot of different circuits. So um, you don't realise it, of course, at that time, but you look back years later and, and you know, remember it of, as being a, you know, it was certainly a pretty good part of my life for sure. The, the Kerrick Sports Sedan era, when, when Kerrick, you know, threw their weight behind supporting the category, the Hossack Riccadello or Riccadello Hossack battles were, were legendary and there was some, really strong interlopers in there as well. Kerry Bailey had won multiple championships and he came back with the Aston in a year. He took it to both of you. Um, young Stephen Tomasi appeared on the scene as well, but the rivalry or the competition between you and Tony was legendary. You know, the, the, the straight at, at Sydney Motorsport Park where Tomasi would just drive between you and drive away like a, like a pro stock drag car. And then, by turn two, you'd both gone through on him again and the battle resumed all the way around the back of the track. I'm just saying Sydney Motorsport Park. But 2013, I was calling the sports sedans with Gaz at Queensland Raceway and we touched on this when Tony joined us. I think it was race three for the weekend and I think Tony could have reached over from Western Australia and pulled my tonsils out when I said to him, I I actually can't remember who who won. He thinks he did an engine in the last race, but the last race... One, when Shannon's Nationals did their decade of racing, that race won the race of the decade. I don't know whether you remember it, Darren, but Tony sort of hung me out to dry when I asked him that one. Yeah, and obviously I've listened to that uh, that podcast that you did, and um, I honestly, I can't remember who won. <laughs> um, there was a lot of, you know, look, there was a lot of, Tony and I had a lot of great races. Probably I'm going to say he beat me more than I beat him. We unfortunately had a lot of, um, um, you know, mechanical issues, um, particularly, you know, when you build a new car like we did with the Audi, um, you know, there's, there's always going to be teething issues and things like that. And one of the things with sports sedans is they're ever evolving. You're always trying to make them better. And um, I think sometimes we probably cost ourselves you know, a few race wins because we went racing with things a little bit untested. But, you know, I always commended Tony for the effort that he did from, you know, effectively preparing the car in WA and then leaving it, um, you know, in the Eastern States and sort of turning up and and not just racing it, you know, prepping it and, and then racing, you know. Um, his reliability was, was really very good and... Um, you know, there was probably a period there where on certain circuits we had a dominance over him. 
but we didn't always capitalize on that. And, you know, he had very, very few mechanical issues. And as a result, he's won more championships than anyone else. And honestly, he deserves it. There's actually one uh, one reliability question I was going to ask. There was a certain meeting at Malala. You may remember this one where uh, Navy of you started in the cars that you went there. Yeah, that was um, that was an interesting weekend. That one, I um, I remember Tony got a, a his car caught fire on the Friday afternoon, and um, I was going to stop and help him. But to be honest with you, the fire extinguisher that you carry in the car wasn't going to do anything. Um, and I think they, you know, they got the, the car sort of, you know, it did cop a lot of damage, but um, they got the fire sorted out. And um, I think from memory, we might have um, damaged an engine in our car. I can't remember exactly what had happened. And yeah, Simon Fitzner right. said, um, yeah, it's all right. Why don't we get the Falcon ready? It's I've, I've got this Falcon sports sedan. It just needs a few things done. You know, the windows bolted back in and so forth. Well, um, he might have, exaggerated a little bit on the work that was involved <laughs> we had barry bray there doing fiberglassing and and john was you know welding things together and we worked flat out on that literally from i think eight o'clock friday night to pretty much you know into the wee hours of sunday morning just to get the car there and you know it was untested it was a left-hand drive car it was it was totally foreign to me, but it did the job. You know, Tony, um, from memory, ran Bob, and, Bob McLaughlin's car and um, and we ran the Falcon. And obviously the aim was just to score points. Um, I think I've still got the burns on my foot or the scars from the burns that I got from driving that car. It was, <laughs> I remember the, the, you know, the firewall was right next to the exhaust as it is in a lot of sports sedans, but um yeah, that was particularly hot. I was going down the straight with my left foot on the accelerator pedal just to get give my right foot a bit of a breather. And there's not much of a straight at Malalara either, is there? Really? No, there's not. Hence the reason I've still got the scars from the burns. <laughs> I think uh, I think Dean Cam worked pretty hard that weekend in the Corvette because all of a sudden he almost came the favourite for the round. Yeah, it was. Look, there was probably if you look back over the years, there's there was a lot of rounds where you know strange things happen like that and and the way the points were um i remember the first round at wakefield one year tony and i both had issues and were out for the weekend and of course kerry bailey won all three races and you pretty much you know unless kerry had had issues you were pretty much gonna struggle to beat him because he could finish third pretty much every race and he was probably still going to win the championship but for anyone that knows sports sedans, getting them across the line is quite often a bit of a drama and, and they are a, you know, reliability is an issue. So um, I, I can't remember even who won the championship that year. Uh, but, I, can, um, I can I can tell you actually, no uh, that was 2009 and Kerry won the championship because that was the first meeting in that car. Yeah, well, there the you Aston. go. So, uh, yeah, so it actually, um, and no doubt, look, he, he would have deserved to win the championship. I don't think anyone wins a sports sedan championship without deserving to win it because it's not only about the driving, it's, you know, largely these cars are constructed in people's garages, you know, so um, keeping them going is always a bit of a, is a bit of a mission. And, um, you know, I remember when Kerry bought that car out to his credit, it was, it was fast and it was reliable and um, yeah, obviously got the job done. Darren, looking back at the conversation we've had, we've had with you so far, there's a, a big whack of 
engineering that 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 comes up with what you're doing and and fabricating and and making the the mouse trap faster is that i guess over the journey with your time in sports dance is that what's attractive to you that you these machines are absolutely bespoke as opposed to a supercar everyone's got pretty much the same mouse trap the upright might be different and the guy that owns boost mobile might get angry about that but the sports sedans are uh, uh, bespoke to, you've got a completely different vehicle in every single way to the guy sitting on the grid next to you. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and, and that's how, you know, racing was certainly when, when I was a kid and, and going motor racing with my dad, you know, 99.9% of the cars were all built by people at home. And I guess that's one of the things I like about sports sedans. Um, you can, you know, get all your ideas that you've got right or wrong and you can put them into a car. And um, not only when it comes to driving, you know, if you look at supercars these days, it's about engineering the car and, and, and driving, but, you know, sports sedans, you didn't go home and go, you know, I'll go and put a different spring in or something like that. You're like, you know, I'm going to go and cut the back of the car off and um, I'm going to, you know, move it all around or I'm going to make a different rear wing or a front spoiler or something like that. So, for me, I've always had an interest in um, making a car go faster, not only with springs and shocks and things like that, but also from, you know, a sheer engineering point of view of, of you know, cutting things off the car and changing them. And, you know, right back to the Gemini where I, you know, I attacked it with an angle grinder and um, I'm, I know it's still got, you know, marks of work that I've done on it even today, but um yeah, for me, that's that's one of the enjoyments. You know, you you do enough racing in in your life, and whilst I still love racing cars, it's probably the the quest of trying to get them to go faster that that challenges me more than actually driving them around a racetrack these days. So nowadays, you're not so involved in racing yourself, although you did bring a Mazda RX two out to Winton the other week and have a punt around in that. Is that just uh, just a sort of a sideline now, I guess? Um, yeah, it is. Look, um, I, I do um, a lot of fabrication work for, for people and I guess it's a, I still love racing um, and it's, once again, it's a rotary, it's a good bang for buck type car. And I guess my market is sports sedans and also the historic racer. You know, I'm not, I'm not out there to try and build a V8 supercar for someone, but I think I've got, skills and knowledge that I can offer to people um, from a driving aspect, from a, from a car setup point of view and being a, you know, a, a tool maker by trade, I can machine things and I can weld things. So that's sort of what I'm doing and, and running that car, I guess, is um, as much fun as it is. It's just to show people that, you know, the type of stuff that I can make um, and if I can help them, they know where they can find me. So Hossack Motorsport Services has been born out of, uh, I guess, a, a necessity to uh, scratch that itch to keep you still involved in in racing. Is that is that sort of where where that came from? Well, I was working um, once again back at Drew Price Engineering for many many years, running the race team there, and I was always mindful that I was in a job that was probably the only job in Australia, and if I ever wanted a change of environment. There really wasn't one. And um, a good mate of mine, Brett Ferris, had been building a Tirana for 20 years. And the, the plan always was, was that we were going to race together. And Brett rang me one day and said, oh, look, I need a, 
exhaust and fuel tank and this and that. Where do I go to get it done? And I said, oh, mate, I don't know. Just bring it around over the Christmas holidays and I'll, I'll get it all done for you. And I don't know why I put some photos on Facebook and next minute people are like, oh, can you do all that stuff? Can you? And I sort of, I, I finished up for Christmas in end of 2016, planning to go back to work at DPE. And when I went back, I was actually handing in my resignation. So um, looking back now, I don't know if it was the smartest thing. I Well, it was a smart thing to do. I'm pretty happy with what I've done, but I really didn't have a customer base or anything like that. I had a couple of people that wanted some work done, but pretty quickly, um, yeah, pretty quickly I, I got pretty busy. So between that and a lot of driver training that I do with driver dynamics um, and also one-on-one -on -one stuff with people, it keeps me pretty busy. You touched on earlier that you were you know, raced against Cameron Prince. You're working with Courtney in her Aussie racing car side of things. And she's also racing in the Porsche Michelin uh, sprint challenge as well. The, the coaching thing with pretty much all of the guests we've had on the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racing podcast pops up from time to time. And you mentioned your time when you jumped into supercars, you, you probably needed some coaching. There probably wasn't coaching as we know it now back then, Darren. So that, do you see that that's got some legs for you? Um, look, I, I don't probably go out and actively chase it. Um, but, you know, for those that, that sort of know me, I, I guess, you know, I'm always happy to help if, if people want help. Um, you know, motorsport, there's, there's so many things that you've got to do well to be successful at it. And whilst I'll be the first to say I don't know everything, particularly when people are getting into motorsport, um, their knowledge of how to set up a car and, and pre prepare it and all those sorts of things will quite often hold them back even if they, you know, can drive quite well. So um, I guess that's the area where I step in, you know, simple things like suspension and all of that sort of stuff. And if they want me to go to the track and I've driven plenty of people's cars and we'll overlay the data and look at what they do. And um, yeah, quite often, you know, through driver dynamics, we um, we're able to sit next to them. And, you know, that's probably the best way of giving someone coaching is to actually be able to sit next to them and watch what they do. Thinking back on your career, and um, uh, I know you said you always had a soft spot for Tiranas back in your early days. Um, did you have ambitions to maybe get into a historic touring car Tirana at any stage, or was the Mazda just an easier car to do? To, do to be with? honest with you, the Mazda was was there at the time at the right price, um, and because my mate Brett had a Tirana. I figured that if I got a Mazda, which was also popular in the historic scene, I could develop stuff for Tiranas and I could also develop stuff for Mazdas and therefore I'd have two lots of stuff and two lots of knowledge. Um, and also just the cost of getting a Mazda to go quick um, relative to a Tirana, you know, those engines in the Tiranas, they're, you know, they're very, very highly modified. I have a bit to do with Ian Tate these days, and I know the work that goes into those engines. Um, whereas the rotary, effectively, you make the hole bigger and it goes faster. That's that's how they work. And, um, <laughs> you know, they're, they're pretty bulletproof. Gearboxes have proven to be a little bit of an issue for me, but uh, engines have been pretty good. We might take a quick break before we push the... Uh... Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racing Podcast, Homeward Bound. In just a moment, we'll be back.
taking a break. And three, two, one. Welcome back to the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racing Podcast with Daz and Gaz. And uh, it's been a, a ripping affair during this uh, podcast with Darren Hossack, who has got a very broad spectrum of motorsport under his driving suit and leathers, as it uh, turns out to be in karting. Darren, something I always like to ask people, we have touched on your rivalry with um, with Tony Riccadello. Your greatest rival and your, your I guess, your moment in your career that makes still makes your heart beat and pound that you went, wow, that is the number one moment in my career. Well, I'd have to say the greatest rival was Tony, um, simply just because of the the years that we battled each other, you know, whilst there was guys like Ben Savage and Carding that were, you know, great rivals, just the time that Tony and I just went toe-to-toe, you know, um, I won't say week in and week out, but certainly, you know, six or seven times a year, he was certainly the greatest rival that I ever had um I don't know probably my memory's not good in terms of great moments I do remember passing him and Mick Monoroso uh into turn six at the end of the back straight at Sandown um once which probably looking back was a little bit silly but I remember we had some issues with the car and I drove it from uh from the back up into the lead around the outside of both of them um so you know you look back at those things now and you think well it was probably pretty stupid, but um, it was pretty cool at the time too. There was always that meeting at uh, Phillip Island where Steve, yourself and Tony all going down to turn one off the start, off a rolling start. And that, I think, Tony, we looked at the the speedo or the, the data readout on Tony's car because he went flying off. It was 235 Ks that was doing at the time. Uh, Steve's car wasn't repaired. Do you remember that? incident and i just say that's my biggest regret in sports sedan racing maybe my motorsport career and not for anything to do with the crash other than i always loved phillip island and we'd done a 26 something or other down there one minute 26 and i knew i could do a one minute 25 and we saved the good tires for that race they they'd done one lap in qualifying and i'm like i'm going to go and do a 25 and i was all geared up and 400 metres up the road, <laughs> sitting there in the gravel trap. And I don't, I can't remember if that was the last time I raced that car at Phillip Island, but it still haunts me today because I know, I know the I'm car. Sorry, I brought it up. Yeah. No, it's, um, look, it was one of those things. Tony was a bit upset with me at the time because all he knew was that I ploughed into the side of him, but I tried to explain that, hang on, mate, I was the meat and the sandwich. And, yeah, there was um, three of you, three into one wasn't going to work, that's all. Yeah, that's the all road it. sort of narrows up yeah. there. And um, oh, look, it's it's one of those things. I mean, you know, Steve and I have chatted since, and I was I probably said some unfavourable things to him at the time, as you do when, you, when yeah. you're hot under the collar and everything. But um, Actually, I yeah. think that was that was the second race of the weekend and there was still one race to go. And I think Tony started from pit lane. They made some hasty repairs, got that car back out for the last race. I don't know. I don't think he won it, but he went from the back and got a few spots. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that, that was fairly good. Another good question for you. Was the Audi the best car you've driven? Um, I'd have to say it was simply look i've driven a lot of good cars formula holdens poor sports cars all sorts of cars but 
I think because of um, the time that I spent in the car and it was built around me, you know, um, you know, ergonomics and everything, it was just like, you know, it was like putting on a glove. Every time I sat in that car, it was, it was absolutely an extension of my body. And um, yeah, I, I'd, I'd have to say that, um, and, and also the fact of my dad's involvement building it, you know, I was very proud that, you know, he, he'd had such a huge involvement in building that car. Um, so yeah, it was definitely, and look, can I just say that whilst it was great, it actually hurts you later on because when you drive a car like that and then you end up racing, um, say a Mazda RX2 historic car, it's <laughs> as much as I love my little Mazda and everything, the, the bar's been set pretty high, you know? Um, so, you know, even I've driven other people's cars and they're like, Oh, so what do you think? What do you think of the power? And it's like, you know, sort of used to 780 horsepower. And, um, I'm sure you've got a good engine in your car and you're very happy with it. But um, yeah, so it's, it, it, it probably in some ways has, has maybe cut my racing career once again, not career, but my racing ambitions a little bit short because, you know, I'm not driving cars like that anymore. And, and probably the, um, the motivation is, is not there like it was to keep racing when I was racing the Audi. The, the other question springs to mind, the sport, sports sedan, Formula Holden, that sort of thing, there are more a purist sort of motorsport compared to something like, um, utes or excels do you feel that that's the case did you have any ambition to try and get involved in utes where it's almost a crash fest just to try and win no i've never had an ambition to be involved with with utes i think did you have a board about it like i mean did you what did you think of that racing compared to what you used to which is more about man and machine against man and machine but without hitting intentionally or um, not intentionally, look, but you know what I mean? I watched it on TV. I'd say probably the closest I ever got to ever considering doing something like that was actually XLs simply because when I started my business, I was doing a lot of setups on XLs. And I thought at the time that, um, which was about the time I bought the Mazda, I was tossing up whether I did get an XL and, and sort of immerse myself in that market. But to be honest with you, I, I, didn't see the um i really enjoy fabricating stuff and the amount of stuff you can fabricate for an xl and you're you're competing against businesses that do a great job like brown davis too you know and i sort of felt that i was more a you know a bespoke one-off type fabricator um i i like to say to people i do the stuff that other people can't or or won't um when it comes to making things so i've probably always you know, favoured the classes that, that, you know, offer a little bit more of stuff that you can actually do to the cars rather than, you know, there's your mousetrap, they're all the same, go and, you know, tinker with the shocks or whatever you, you need to do and then go and race it. That's never really excited me too much. Darren, just before you go out to race, you, you, you're putting your, your helmet and your driving suit on and you're just about to get in the car what's your process of getting yourself set to go and get in a race or does it start before you start putting your helmet and your driving suit on? Um, typically starts beforehand. I used to watch with the sports sedans. I'd, I'd, you know, look at the things that happened, you know, maybe watch the telecast from the year prior 
go through all my setup notes and everything, you know, um, maybe even look at a bit of data to, to, you know, refresh the things that we struggled with last time. Um, I used to have a sports psychologist and, you know, they gave me a few exercises that you could do, you know, even just lying in bed at night, just, you know, running it, getting your brain into, you know, thinking your way through the lap, um, sometimes with a stopwatch, you know, um, and just, I guess, pre-prepare your mind for what you, you're about to do. These days, I probably don't, you know, I probably sit there on the grid looking at the car opposite me thinking, I wonder why they've made the brake ducts like that or, well, that's a good idea that they've done there. Um, you know, racing at Winton a couple of weeks back against Jason Humble. Jason's a good mate of mine. And, you know, I was just looking at his car thinking what a nice job he'd done on building the car. And um, maybe I should have been thinking about the starts a bit more because I certainly <laughs> marked up one of the starts. <laughs> you, well, you were leading one race. <laughs> yeah, we um, oh, look, we had to take a punt on, on the weather and, um, you know, that sinking feeling you have when you've got a wet setup in the car and you're looking at the track and it's bone dry and um, <laughs> the car was pretty average in that race. But um, yeah, we still managed to get second. But hey, as long as you come off and you've got a smile on your face, it's all worthwhile. So how do we get a hold of you, Darren? I've got a I've got an RX3 that I want to go faster than your RX2 and I think you might be able to help me. How, how do I find you? Um, look, I, I don't, I don't really advertise as such because there's plenty of work out there, but typically through Facebook, most people get in touch with me. Um, just got a Hossack Motorsport Services Facebook page where I just from time to time put a few things up on there that I, that I make that I think might interest a few people. Um, but yeah, people normally just get, get message me on Facebook and, um, and that's how we get in touch. Well, Darren, it's been a fantastic time with you here today. And certainly uh, the two blokes that are chatting to you have been absolutely wrapped that we've got you on episode seven. We uh, we started off with Tony Riccadello. And when we did the list of things, we went right through. And it, uh, it's no secret that both Gaz and I put the two of you at the top of the, the list. There was some other commitments that we had to we had to do, and we thought we probably should break up the uh, the sports sedans uh, just a little bit by a few episodes. But thank you so much for giving of your time so generously tonight, and particularly with your your candid answers and and things like that. We really appreciate it. No, look, I appreciate the opportunity to you know tell the story. It's it's not you know I don't look back at what I've done and think that it's anything special. But um, I do appreciate you know. Um, the likes of both of you being interested enough and anyone else that listens to this for, you know, listening to the journey, you know, it's, um, you never set off on a journey at the start, but, you know, 30 years later, you look back and you think, wow, there's been a fair bit happened over that time. So yeah, thanks again for, for taking the interest in, um, in speaking to me. You realise, of course, you're going to get swamped with inquiries now, aren't you? Well, I'm one bloke and uh, a couple of welders, so there's only so much one can do. But um, no, look, always enjoy helping people. You know, I was at Sandown yesterday working and I saw a guy with a Tirana and went over and had a bit of a chat to him. And um, yeah, quite often, you know, it's not about making the money or anything like that. It's just about, you know, probably passing on some experience and, and you know, to those that are willing to listen if, if you know, if they want a bit of help and... Um, yeah, I just enjoy the you know the grassroots racing these days. It's um, it's it's good to have been racing at a high level, but at the same time, I guess at heart, I've always been a grassroots racer, and maybe that's why, you know, I didn't do the supercars as long as potentially I could have or should have or whatever. I don't know. But um, thanks again. 
I guess uh, before you go, we all uh, we wish Jordan Caruso all the best this weekend at Sydney Motorsport Park in the Audi as well, don't we? Yeah, Jordan's a great little steer. I was fortunate enough to work with him um, when he was a young bloke in carts. And back then he was amazing in terms of his knowledge, you know, like high level knowledge of, you know, talking about where tubes would go in, in cart chassis and things like that. And um, when John was looking for someone to, to drive the, the Audi, um, you know, I sort of did my best to try and, and get them both together because I knew Jordan would be such a good fit. You know, he's, he's a great young kid. He's, he's got his head screwed on well on his shoulders. He's very, very technical. And by all accounts, every time I talk to John, he's, he's very, very happy with, with how Jordan drives the car. And the main thing which John needs is Jordan's got a huge amount of respect for the car. You know, it's, you can't be crashing those cars all the time. And I don't even know if Jordan's even spun the thing yet. So um, <laughs> maybe well, there's a little bit more that, on the table he can he can. There, there was one incident at Sydney Motorsport Park. He spun off at turn two and then forgot to put the uh, thing in gear. So it started rolling back That's down towards right. the track when he was out of the car, which That's was quite right. humorous. But um, he doesn't like to be reminded of that one. And we're not here to bag out Jordan. No, <laughs> so no, he's no, done a tremendous job. Not. If, if Darren, you look at... I was just going to say, if you look at someone like Jordan, and this is what blows me away a lot with young kids these days, he raced carts, he raced XLs, and now he's racing one of the fastest stands in the country. Like, I remember when I started racing Formula Ford, there wasn't a corner at Winton I didn't spin off at. And, and you know, kids these days getting cars like that, it's it's just amazing, the, you know, the job that they can do. Darren, thanks so much for your time. We've really appreciated you on uh, Episode 7 of the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racing Podcast. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks, Darren. Well, we're back. We've just finished off that great interview with Darren Hossack. Things that have happened over the last couple of weeks that uh, have happened. Uh, do that again. We're back talking about motorsport now and things that have happened over the last weekend or so. Leyburn Sprints, Darren, at Leyburn in country Queensland celebrates the 1949 Australian Grand Prix at the uh, rural township. And Dean Amos, for about the seventh time, I think was the quickest over the mile sprint that they run through the middle of town. And of course, the Leyburn pub seems to be the place where they all congregate. So it sounds like a good weekend that you and I should get to at some stage. We yeah, it should be. I mean, um, it's not always nice to go to. Queensland when you're from down south at this time of the year and uh, defrost and uh, get a good uh, get a good look at things and certainly they're um, they've, they've obviously it's like a, a Targa event I guess it is the way there's different classes and and categories and modern and historic and all those bits and pieces yeah and some, well it's a, some it, of the cars is are a, just amazing yes yeah well those stuff there dating back to about 1906 or something so gives you an idea that they take in the whole gamut of motorsport at that meeting uh, and a lot of names go there dick johnson's been there in the past and uh, you see a lot of people that we see around the traps that are always involved in in that event each year and of course uh, you did touch on the uh, morgan park event from last weekend was because of queensland state racing championships as well as the formula ford championship australian rally happened down your neck of the woods down to gippsland at Highfield in Victoria. Yeah, certainly uh, the, Victorian... the uh, rally to everywhere or whatever it was called was um, great to see the spectator uh, areas chock-a-block. Rally has really, really suffered 
during COVID, there were so many events just left on the shelf and uh, and particularly down at Gippsland. And they're, they're now um, sport for choice after three years of nothing. They've got the Alpine down that in the same direction near Hayfield in uh, the first weekend of December as well. So that famous uh, rally will be run, which is only run every two years, but didn't two years ago for obvious reasons. And uh, yeah, we, so it's a four-year four break, basically. Yeah. And also that uh, that event was a round of the state rally championship as well, which just ran one of the days, I believe. Uh, and we did touch on as well, Motor Racing Australia had had their uh, event at Wakefield Park, which was seeing the gates close on that. We did talk about that. Coming into this weekend, of course, we've got the off-road championships for Motor Racing Australia at Hindmarsh. And again, down your neck of the woods, uh, State Hill Climb Championship at Gunnada in New South Wales, the second last round of that motor racing events at Winton, a 16-hour race for any car that's got a Red Bull price of under $5,000. Um, of course, then the Australian Racing Drivers Club's Super 70 on this weekend, which is basically the, uh, the, the what was originally the Muscle Car Masters that Probably doesn't have quite the uh, appeal these days, but certainly a good lineup of categories, about eight categories on that, including the uh, National Australian Sports Sedan Series Round 4. Yeah, certainly yeah, looking forward to seeing that. It's a bumper field of um, sports sedans there as well. We've touched on Jordan Caruso. All the uh, all the main contenders are there. Stephen Tomasi will be there in the Precision Intel car. Uh, and it will be uh, worth the price of the ticket to head out to Sydney Motorsport Park. And the, the sports sedans are well suited to Sydney Motorsport Park. They've got the wide open run down the straight and then, then multiple changes of directions that really test the, the behemoths of Australian motorsport to, to get themselves around that uh, that track. Of course, here in Victoria, we have, uh, we're sort of waiting for a couple of weeks. We've had a, a smattering of uh, a lot of motorsport, but 16, 17, 18 of September, We'll see the Shannons Motorsport Australia Championships at Sandown, TCR Australia Series at the top of the billing there. Gulf Western Oil Touring Car Masters, Turtle Wax Trans Ams, Australian Production Cars presented by Liqua Molly, the Porsche Michelin Sprint Challenge Australia, and uh, the longest title in Australian motorsport, Fanatec GT World Challenge Australia, <laughs> powered by AWS. And the race is over by the time you get the in, entire yeah. title out. Really looking forward to that. That's going to be... Uh, fantastic weekend we i guess here in victoria each time the gates open at sandown gaz we absolute celebrate because we're in the twilight of its existence the feeling is pretty heavy heart at the moment that we're, we're not going to have too many more years out of sandown yeah and now that uh, wakefield park's closed at the moment it's just uh re reinforces that feeling of maybe sandown's the next one to go well, I guess the good thing is that we just now to apply pressure upon the powers that be. You know, there's a, a facility out at uh, Calder Park there that, yeah, it's run down. Um, but, you know, you look at Sydney Motorsport Park, there's Sydney Motorsport Park with four different circuit arrangements. There's the drag strip. Now there's the speedway. The whole site's owned by the government. It's leased out by promoters. And uh, those venues are used constantly all the time. Maybe it's about time that here in Victoria we started to get a little bit more uh, politically inclined and start to put some pressure on people that in the, in those places to, to get these venues back up and, and operating again, because we, we're going to need them. Um, the next one in Victoria will be the next round of the Victorian state circuit racing championships at Phillip Island on the 24th and 25th of, uh, of September, the weekend after Sandown. 
And uh, big congratulations to Steve Zorkas for sealing the under two liter improved production championship already at Sandown. So uh, I'm not sure whether Steve will even bother to head down there, but a great weekend. I've always touted that weekend, Gaz, as the, uh, I know you don't, you'll disagree with me, but it's the uh, it's the aerial ping pong time of uh, the year here with the AFL in <laughs> Melbourne. It's always great to get away from all of that and go racing at Phillip Island. Well, yeah, well, Phillip Island's always great to go to at any stage, especially in the, up in the ivory town where you get up there to do all the calling. You know where it is, Gaz, you've been there. And you're welcome back whenever, at any time as well. Gee, thanks. I'd love to go back down there. Hopefully it'll happen at some stage. But, um, yeah, a lot to look forward to. And, of course, we're not that far off the going back up to the mountain as well. Well, certainly. As I said at the top of the show, everyone walk around to where the Mount Panorama sign is and see that uh, there's the little sign next to it saying Gary's Mount Panorama. No, no, that's not there. That's a lie. You just made that up. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good in the intro. They have to hang into all the way into the show now to know it's not actually true. Gaz, thank you very much. Episode seven, who knew? We'll uh, we'll gather our thoughts and uh, and our guest list, which um, over the last couple of weeks we've we've uh, managed to grow the list and get some commitment for some uh, some really good motorsport names, and we look forward to bringing that to you on the next episode of the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racing. Catch you later, Gaz. See you, Dad. You've just listened to another Network Car production. 